just a note if you didn't receive the memo that children's choir will not be meeting today. So all of our kids will go to children's church this morning. Hey, good morning to all of you. Welcome to church. I'm glad you're here. My name is Cody. I'm the senior pastor here at South Shore Baptist. And uh, for those of you that have been out all summer and now you're back, man, you look tanned and just glowing. You look great. And I'm excited to grow uh, pale and pasty with you over the next few months indoors. So I'm glad you're here. Would you take your Bibles, please, and open to the book of Genesis, chapter 11. And today we're going to finish our study in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. We're going to dip a little toe into chapter 12 in order to wrap it all up neatly. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a black one and a pew rack right in front of you. I really want to encourage you, open that up, track with your own eyes what we read and what we're studying together. It will be tremendously beneficial to you. And if you need a Bible, uh, we've got Bibles for you to take home at the welcome desk. You don't need to ask permission. They don't cost anything. Just grab one of those and take it with you this morning. Uh, while you're turning there, just a couple of quick pieces of information to put into your mind. One is you've already heard the announcement about Sunday school today. Um, membership class also begins today. I just want to make sure you're aware of that. If you're interested in joining our church or you want to know more about who we are, what we believe, what we do, then the membership class is a four-week class starting today that will answer those questions for you. If you can't make it in this uh, cycle of classes, we're going to offer another membership class, another four-week experience starting at the end of October. So we'll, you don't have to remember that. We'll remind you, but just know those are your options. And then uh, the other thing I just want to keep in your brain, next Sunday is National Back to Church Sunday. You came to church today, and so you're already ahead of the game. Next Sunday, I want you to be here. I want you to invite someone to come with you. We're going to start a new sermon series on prayer, and it's going to be a great Sunday for all of us to be together as we uh, get in God's Word and fellowship with one another. All right, Genesis chapter 11 is uh, where we're going to spend our time this morning. What are we doing here? That's the big question. I mean, here we are in the same room at the same time, and for what? Why do we keep coming back? What's the point of all of this? Maybe this is a theater, and you all are like ticket holders, and it's our job on the stage to present the best show we can so you're both entertained and inspired. Or maybe this place is like a museum and it's our task to make sure that nothing changes ever, that we stay frozen in one particular cultural moment. Maybe this place is a place for good luck. And so you come here as often as you do, whenever you can, and by doing so, God is going to do you well. Maybe this is a place for social change. And so we shift from crisis to crisis, picking sides and making statements. Or maybe we don't have to decide what kind of place this is at all because God has already spoken. God has already defined who we are as his people and as his church. What we've learned through our study of Genesis 1 through 11 is that we are an outpost of heaven. We are ambassadors for a different kingdom and the one true king. And he has put us here to move the world towards his intended created purpose, which is to fill the earth with his glory. That's what we're doing here. 
In Genesis 1 through 11, we've seen that purpose put on full display. We've also seen the impact of our sin on God's creation and his people. Even after the flood, the earth is barely dry and people are right back to their rebellious, sinful ways. Uh, Just last week, at the beginning of chapter 11, we went to the city of Babylon where mankind gathered together in unified rebellion against God to build a city with a tower and to make their own name great. And then chapter 10 before that showed us how in the aftermath of Babylon, God scattered those people and placed them where he wanted them, dividing them by families and nations and languages. And now here we are after Babylon, after the great scattering of people, wondering what is God going to do? How is he going to fix the problem of sin in this world and sin that impacts his people? Because things are messed up in this story. And if you were to just glance around this world, perhaps you've thought the same thing about the place and time in which we live. There are things that are messed up in the world around us. On the one hand, there are beautiful things in creation, and humans are capable of such amazing compassion and kindness and creativity and heroism. But on the other hand, we live in a place of intense suffering and sorrow and sadness and death and injustice. Now, now the, per, the people among us who believe in no God would say, that's just the way it is, and you just got to do the best you can with the things that we have. But maybe you feel different. Maybe you recognize this isn't right. Things are supposed to be better. Just I know innately that things are not supposed to be this way. And that's an echo of heaven from your creator inside of you. If you're not familiar with the Bible, if you don't know God, it's his voice in you saying, yeah, you're created for something different, for something more. This is not the way things are supposed to be. And so we're left with the same question today that we might be left with here in the middle of Genesis chapter 11. How's God going to fix all of this? What's he going to do? How will things get set right? And we see that unfold today in the life of a man named Abram. Now, you're familiar with him uh, because in the rest of the Bible, he's known as Abraham. But he doesn't become Abraham. He's not given that name until later in his story with God. Today, he's just Abram, and that's how I'm going to refer to him uh, in our time together. And in the midst of great human sin and great human suffering and the groaning of creation, God spoke into his creation and called out a man named Abram through whom he would unfold his created purpose for us, his people. And as we read this passage here in just a moment, I want you to put yourself in place of Abram. It's always a great study trick when we're reading the Bible is is to ask the question, who am I in this story? More often than not, we're not David defeating Goliath. We're, We're the scaredy cats running away from Goliath. We're not the heroes, we're not the big dogs. But this morning, when we read, I want you to put yourself in the place of Abram. I want you to imagine you're him, and you hear the voice of God, and you hear the call of God clearly on your life to leave everything that's familiar to you and go to an unknown destination to fulfill God's purpose. The reason I want you to imagine that is because that is precisely what God is doing today to you. He has put a call on your life 
to fulfill his created purpose. And my purpose today is to help you see and understand God's call on your life so that you will answer yes to him. This is what we're here for. This is what you are saved for. This is what you were created for. So our passage helps us understand God's mission by describing it with three simple characteristics, three simple characteristics of the most profound work imaginable. I want you to follow along with me as I read Genesis chapter 11. I'm going to start in verse 10. We've got one last genealogy to knock out of the park. Don't sweat it, though. It's only going to take us about two and a half minutes to read this. And so I want you to follow along with me as I read, starting in chapter 11, verse 10. These are the family records of Shem. Shem lived 100 years and fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. After he fathered Arpachshad, Shem lived 500 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Arpachshad lived 35 years and fathered Shelah. After he fathered Shelah, Arpachshad lived 403 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and fathered Eber. After he fathered Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and fathered Peleg. After he fathered Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and fathered Reu. After he fathered Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Reu lived 32 years and fathered Sarag. After he fathered Sarag, Reu lived 207 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Sarag lived 30 years and fathered Nahor. After he fathered Nahor, Sarag lived 200 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and fathered Terah. After he fathered Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. These are the family records of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans during his father Terah's lifetime. Abram and Nahor took wives. Abram's wife was named Sarai, and Nahor's wife was named Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was unable to conceive. She did not have a child. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. So we've just been given a glimpse into the mission of God. It's a mission that endures to this day. It's a mission that you were created and saved from your sin for. And our passage teaches us three central characteristics of God's mission for us. How are we to understand the work that God has called us to do? Here's how. The first characteristic of God's mission is that it's a mission of grace. And we see this laid out through the genealogy leading up to Abram and his father, Terah. 
Now, the end of chapter 11, start of verse 12, is a bit alarming because there's no sound explanation as to why we have it or as to why it reads the way it does. Why does God call Abram specifically, and why does he form this covenant with him to do this great work? Well, we can't explain this passage in Genesis historically. It makes no sense historically. We don't get to a point here historically where mankind has achieved greater righteousness than before or a greater reason for God to be favorable and kind than we had before. When we get to the end of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12, we are still stuck in the thick of sinful humanity increasing in their rebellion against God. There's an interesting pattern here in the, the first part of Genesis. Uh, the pattern begins with Adam. And from Adam to Noah is ten generations. And in and, and those ten generations, uh, after those ten generations, God is so tired of mankind's sin that he decides to start over. He floods the world, kills every living creature, and saves Noah and his family to begin anew. Noah steps off the ark, the earth is barely dry, and he steps right back into sin. You'll remember it's a whole new creation, but it's the same human heart. And from Noah and his sons, while the population grows, also sin increases. And so from Adam to Noah is ten generations increasing sin the whole time, which culminates in this judgment, the flood. From Shem, Noah's son, to Abram is ten generations. And what's happening to the righteousness of mankind in those ten generations? Well, the account we have here in this genealogy is that mankind just continues to live for itself. In previous genealogies, we might have little glimpses of hope and goodness. For example, in chapter 5, we're told Enoch walked with God. At the end of chapter 5, we're told Noah found favor with God. He was a righteous man. But no one is described that way in the genealogy we just read. And I think that silence is intentional. There's nothing to brag about among these peoples. God has scattered them, and through successive generations, there is no righteousness, no holiness, no longing for God, no increasing in godliness among the nations. And so when we get to Abram, if the pattern were to hold, we might expect something devastating to happen. From Adam to Noah, ten generations of intensifying sinfulness followed by judgment and the flood. From Shem to Abram, ten generations of intensifying sinfulness. So fill in the blank. What should come next? Not a flood. God's promised he won't do that again. But why not volcanoes or fire or plague? Some sort of widespread death to again wipe the slate clean and start over again. In these generations, we find mankind repeatedly, repeatedly rejecting God and rejecting his fellowship and his kindness. And as a result, the, the earth should be once again judged and destroyed and scattered. But here, something new starts. We can't explain it historically. It doesn't make any sense. We can't explain it personally either. Why Abram? We're not given any specific information about who he is as a man, what his character is like, 
Here's what we can rightly assume. We can rightly assume that Abram is like his father and all of his ancestors before him living in a distant land far from God for themselves. We're not told that Abram is some sort of secret follower of God or, or he alone walks with God while everyone else worships idols. But we're not given like this seed of hope. If anything, the information we're given about Abram would make him the last person we would pick. He doesn't show great leadership. He just goes wherever daddy takes him. Uh, what's more, Abram uh, doesn't, isn't even able to create an heir. He, he cannot produce the next ten generations, let alone the, let alone the next one generation. He's wandering, he, he's infertile, he, he cannot create a child with his wife. He's, he's walking in the shadow of the grief of his brother's death. And then at the end of chapter 11, his dad dies and here's just Abram all by himself. And, and what's more, it's right for us to assume that Abram was an idolater like the people he lived around. He's not a part of some secret prayer group that's just saying... Lord God, come, Yahweh, we, we're the remnant. We're the ones holding faithful. We're just given a man in weakness and brokenness. Why, Abram, we would not pick him. We wouldn't see in Abram A-team material. We would see someone with every reason for us to pass up on, to say no to. A man who is living in despair, who has wandered the majority of his life, who at this point is relatively old and not the one that we would think God's going to do something great with. And it's into this man's life in particular that God spoke. And chapter 12 opens with this line, the Lord said to Abram. It's astounding that God spoke to Abram. But what if I told you that you are the recipient of greater revelation than Abram ever imagined. God gave Abram his word. God gave you his son. And why would you receive greater revelation than Abram? Can't explain it historically. We have not shown ourselves as human beings capable of increasing in righteousness of becoming more godlike from generation to generation. Left to ourselves, we are dead and dying in sin and content to live in that decay. Can't explain it historically. Can't explain it personally. I know myself. I know my sin. I know my rebellion. I know the darkness I lived in before I knew Christ. I, knew the, I know the pull of sin since I've become a Christian. There's nothing in me that makes me one of God's A-team people who deserves among all people to have this revelation, to know Jesus Christ in this way. The only explanation for Abram and for us is the incredible grace of God to sinners. At the end of chapter 11, God has every right to bring sweeping judgment into the story and here on this day, God also has the right to bring sweeping judgment in. But he's a God who keeps his promise to crush the serpent and to redeem his people. He's a God who's faithful when we are faithless. He is a God who gives the good things we don't deserve. He's a God of grace. And so his mission is a mission of grace. It's grace 
to us, those who hear the gospel and respond by faith in Christ, that is all God's grace. And then the actual work itself to make Christ known is a grace to us, Christ followers, the church, to carry out, to fill the earth with God's glory. It's a mission of grace. That's not all it is, though. Well, it's a mission of grace, the second characteristic given to us in this story is that it's a mission that's global. It's a mission for the nations. It's not a mission just for ethnic Israel in the Old Testament. It's not a mission for just America on this side of Easter. It is a mission that's global. So when we get to chapter 12, we have the call of Abram. God's grace to the nations begins with this speech to Abram. And I want you to look at it with me with your own eyes. It begins in verse 1 with a call to leave. Look at what God says to Abram. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So God tells Abram to leave three things. Your land, your relatives, your father's house. Those three things increase in intensity and value. Abram, leave your land. Yeah, okay. I, that's not great, but I'll do that. Abram, leave your relatives. Man, but we're really tight, and I love my family. Abram, leave your father's house. My whole identity is right here. Memories I made with my dad, the stories we share of my brother Haran who died. My, my whole life is right here. Okay, God, where am I going? I'll show you. He, he doesn't give... Abram, the destination. He doesn't say, here's step by step where you're going to go and what, what you're going to do. How often do we demand that of God? God, where am I going? Where are you taking me? And God says, I'll, I'll show you. And so God calls Abram to leave these things that are so precious and dear. And then he gives Abram four promises to hold him in this mission, to help him leave this place and to go where God is sending him. He gives him four promises in verses 2 through 3. Uh, one of my favorite Bible writers and preachers is a guy named Dale Ralph Davis. And Dale Ralph Davis on this passage has called this the quad promise. You could just call it the four promises, or if you want to be cool, you call it the quad promise. And that's what people think of when they think of Dale Ralph Davis. They think, that guy's cool. So quad promise is what I want to give you or help package this in this way for you. And so here's the quad promise. Here are the four promises that God gives to Abram. The first is a people. He says, I'll make you into a great nation in verse 2. So God's words to Abram get absurd really quick because at the end of chapter 11, we're told that Abram's wife Sarai is unable to bear children. Never mind what Sarai knows and what Abram knows, God knows, and God promises to make a great nation out of Abram's descendants. The second promise is of protection or presence, even provision. All of these get lumped in together when God is present with his people. In verse 3, God says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. So in other words, God's not going to just get the ball rolling with Abram and then step out of the picture and let Abram figure it out on his own. God will be present with Abram to protect him and to provide for him. Only a God who is present is a God who can 
protect. So uh, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. Here's a promise of God's presence and protection over him. Now, real quick, I want to comment on this line because I have read and heard preached this line incorrectly many, 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 many times. And here's how I've heard this line used most commonly from people who have books about the end times to sell. They use this book to dictate what American foreign policy should be in our relationship with the nation of Israel. Here's my disclaimers. I am not qualified to comment on political policy. I wouldn't dare. Well, I might because I'm dumb enough, but I'm not qualified to do that. And I'm not saying, what I'm about to say is not saying America should not be an ally with Israel. That's not what I'm saying at all. But you cannot use this line to support that stance. You have to use other factors. What people will often say is, well, we've got to be a friend to Israel because God will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. The nation that's a friend to Israel and yet is in blatant rebellion against God will never know the blessings of God. We should not be primarily concerned with who our nation's allies are, but with the condition of our nation's souls. That's the work of the church. We'll let politicians politic, and as God's people... We will walk with God in his presence, under his protection, as we carry out the mission God has given us. The next time you hear some wild-eyed, end-times preacher, writer, reference this verse and try to support something political with it, you know, you know, that's not the proper way to use God's word. So save your money. Spend it on ice cream instead. It'll be much more enjoyable than some book that's full of falsehoods. I will bless those who bless you, Abram. I will curse those who curse you. I'm present with you to protect you and carry you through. The third promise God gives to Abram is a purpose. He says, here's the point of all of this, Abram. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God has an agenda, and that agenda is to bless all the peoples on earth. From the very beginning of Genesis, God's global purpose has been to fill the earth with his glory. That's what he gave to Adam and Eve. That's what he restated with Noah and Mrs. Noah and their sons and their wives. This is still God's mission to fill the earth with his glory. That's God's purpose. The fourth promise is a place. In verse 1, he says, you're going to go to the land I will show you. If we were to read to verse 7, God says, I will give this land to your offspring. Locations are very important to God. And for these promises to be fulfilled, Abram needs a place to settle down. And so God has a promised land in mind, one that he will show to Abram later. So this is the quad promise. It's people, presence, purpose, and place. And it's important as a Bible reader that you hold on to this. Put this in your back pocket. And as you study the Old Testament, this is an excellent filter to evaluate what's going on historically among God's people. Are they his people? Are they uh, in his place fulfilling his purpose with his presence and protection? And you'll be shocked at how often these four things show up after Abram in the timeline of God's people. They don't all four, four show up at the same time in the same place, but sometimes they do. For example, in the book of Numbers, chapter 14, Israel refused to enter the promised land. 
And so they are God's people, not fulfilling their purpose, not in the place God has chosen, and therefore they lose God's protection. In Joshua chapter 5, Israel entered the promised land. And so there they are God's people in God's place, fulfilling God's purposes and enjoying his protection and his provision. What about the New Testament? Well, you get to Acts chapter 1, and Jesus spoke to his people. It's those who believe. And he gave them a purpose. He said, you will be my witnesses. And where's the place where this mission is going to be fulfilled? Jesus said, it's in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's his people for his purpose in his place with his presence. And then where is all of this headed? It's all headed towards the book of Revelation chapter 7 where we get a glimpse of this incredible scene at the end of all things. And in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, John says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. They are God's people, a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They are in God's place before the throne in the land. They are fulfilling their created purpose as they cry out in a loud voice. And they enjoy God's presence as he dwells with them in the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever. At every stop along the way, God is bringing the nations to himself. This is the mission God has given to his people. This is the work he has given to South Shore Baptist Church. That with our neighbors and the nations, we would make Christ known and bring people of every family and nation and language to the throne of God. The church that does not live with a global mindset is missing the heart of God. And the Christian who doesn't look from neighbor to nation is missing this beautiful part of God's purpose for their lives. God's desire is the nations. He wants the earth filled with his glory. Not one tiny kingdom, not one little corner, but the whole earth filled with his glory. And he's called you to do something about it. This mission is a mission of grace. It's a mission that's global. Finally, it's a mission that we have to fulfill. It's a call that's placed on our lives to be God's people in his place, fulfilling his purpose inside his presence and provision. So the call comes to Abram. I need you to leave these things and go where I'm going to show you. And along the way, here are the, here are the good things that are going to happen, the promises that I have for you. For a, a moment, I just want you to imagine if you were in Abram's place, how would you respond? The voice of God comes to you. What do you do? First of all, this is not a voice that you've prepared yourself to hear. Through childhood, you didn't go to you know, vacation Bible school in Ur of the Chaldeans. You weren't a part of Sunday school at Haran Baptist Church. You, just, you lived an idolater's life with your people. And one day you, you just know, you hear the voice that created all things speaking. You know it's real, not a hallucination. How do you respond? A voice you're not prepared for, a voice you haven't 
asked for or prayed for. And look, here's what makes it even trickier. The voice doesn't identify himself. Later people who hear the voice will hear the voice identify himself as the God of Abraham. We get no kind of identifying marker here. The voice that speaks into chapter 12 is just like the voice that spoke in chapter 1. It speaks into the darkness and by the word births something new, fulfills his purpose. So Abram doesn't receive any of the credentials. He doesn't see some manifestation, no burning bush, no talking donkey, no plague of frogs, no nothing weird happening. He just has the word. And how does Abram respond? Look at verse 4. So Abram left as the Lord had told him. He was 75 years old when he took off. So could you do that? If you heard the voice of God saying, go, could you do it? The, the question is not what are you capable of or are, are you brave enough? The question is, do you believe the word? Faith is the central ingredient here to obedience to God's call on our life. That's how the New Testament writers viewed the life of Abram. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, they said, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. All he had was the word. No destination, just the word. And I love the way Abram responds. He doesn't respond verbally to God's request. He doesn't try to barter some deal or negotiate with God. He responded with his feet. He took action. He walked with God. His action showed us that he didn't just believe in God. He believed God. He didn't ask for proof. He provided the proof. He left his land and his family and his father's house. And by faith, Abram followed God's mission so that through him, all nations on earth might be blessed, including the South Shore. And God's call to Abram extends to you today. I asked you that question. If you were in Abram's position, what would you do? And I think it, when we deal in hypotheticals, we'll always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Oh, I, I think I would be so convinced. There's no way I could say no. If I heard that voice, I'm going to do whatever it says. But can I just tell you, every time you have read these words, you have heard this voice. You have heard Jesus himself say, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here in Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. And I am calling on that authority to tell you, go and make disciples of all nations. How are you answering that call? You, you can push back. That's not for me. That, that's for other Christians, better Christians, uh, people who are super disciples. That's, that's not who I am. I do, I'm doing my best just to make it through, just to get to church today. Other people are the ones God's calling to go do this. Don't forget that Abram was not a super believer. He was an idolater. He never even went to Sunday school. You're about to go to Sunday school. He never even did that. And yet, God used Abram. I don't think his call on your life is a mistake, even if you esteem yourself low. 
you might say, that's, that's not for me. I'm too old. It's time for some of these other young people to make things happen. Abram was 75 when he went. So if you live at Linden Ponds or you live at Leisure Woods, you are there on mission with a call from God. Wherever you live, God has called you and put you there. Your birthdays don't excuse you from the call of God on your life. He's done amazing things in the lives of people who have lived long lives of faith and trust in God. Oh, there's any number of reasons you might think God wouldn't use you, but here we see that God does not make a mistake when he puts his call on your life. He has called you to go and make disciples of all nations, and we must. So here's what we've learned of God's mission today. It's a mission of grace. It's for the sake of all nations. It's global in its aspect. And it is for God's people to fulfill. It's what we must do. This is our very created purpose. We are to be God's people in God's place, fulfilling God's purpose with God's abiding presence. Now, when we began our study here in Genesis, we started in a land called Eden, and it had a garden, and it had a river, and it had a tree. Here's how it was described in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden. The story begins with a tree. Do you know how the story ends? The story ends with a tree. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 3, John says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. All of the Bible, and therefore all of human history, happens between two trees. And Jesus has shown us how we are to live our lives between those two trees. When we believe in him, when we follow him, then we are to live like him. We are to fill the earth with his glory as people who live lives of mercy and compassion and forgiveness and sacrifice and joy and hope. We are people who speak the good news of Jesus to people and walk with them all the way to the cross in their own faith in Jesus Christ. We are his people who strive together to see the gospel go to our neighbors and beyond them to the nations for the very purpose that God the Father sent God the Son, the very purpose that God the Holy Spirit indwells his children this very day. Will you say yes to God's call? Will you go to the place he sends you? Will you live so that the world around you is filled with the glory of God by your words and deeds? Will you see to it that the throne of God is surrounded by believers from every tribe, tongue, and nation? Brothers and sisters, speak the gospel. Make Christ known. Fill the earth with the glory of God and heaven with his praises. 
And then one day when we close our eyes for the last time here and we open them for the first time in that distant country, we will stand in front of his throne with fellow believers from Brazil in Taiwan, in Uganda, in Turkey, in Ireland, in Italy, and every people group on earth. And together we will lift our voices in unison to sing the song recorded in Revelation chapter 7. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us, your love displayed through the gift of your son on the cross who laid down his life so that we who were far from you might be brought near. And I'm grateful that your desire is that the whole earth would be filled with your glory. And that's why we, your children, have heard the gospel and responded with faith to you. Thank you for your goodness in our lives. We know what we deserve. But God, through your grace and only your grace, have you chosen to save us. We praise your name. And Lord God, we hear your call. And it's hard for us to say yes. We believe so little in ourselves and we're racked with fear and excuses. So instead of needing to believe in ourselves, Lord, help us to believe in you and to trust you in the call you've put on our lives. Let us fill the earth with your glory in all the places you've put us. Father, I pray that you would speak clearly to anyone in here, any young person that you might be calling into full-time missionary service, that they would hear your call on their life and they would structure their education, their career, their future, that the gospel might go where Christ has not been named. Lord God, would you give us the blessing of seeing that happen from within our church? And I pray for those of us in all the places we live that, Father, we would answer yes to your call and that we would be responsible to see the earth filled with your glory, your name praised here on earth as it is in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray.